from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrower, your host for today's show on Difficult Conversations. In the course of a workday, we can have dozens of conversations that affect our lives in myriad ways. They shape our short and long-term well-being, not to mention how we feel about ourselves and those around us. Are we getting criticism or giving it? Are we asking for a raise, negotiating a project plan, or confronting sexist behavior by a colleague? Or are we walking into a holiday party with people who we know voted in direct opposition to us? These conversations can be unbelievably hard to have and often too frightening to even undertake. But when navigated well, they can be productive and, dare I say, healing, even rewarding. But the question is, how on earth do we make that happen? And when we find ourselves in the middle of fraught exchanges, can we do anything to help turn them around? These are challenging questions that warrant real expert responses, and that's exactly what we've got for you today. Sheila Heen is the co-author of Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, and Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, even when it's done off-base, unfair, poorly delivered, and frankly, you're not in the mood. If you'd like to join in the conversation, which I promise won't be difficult, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So whether you want expert advice from Sheila on how to navigate a challenging issue, or you want to share with us what you've learned about the tricky terrain of the touchy subject, we'd love to hear from you. Once again, that's one 844 Wharton, 844-942-7866. So Sheila Heen has spent more than 20 years with the Harvard Negotiation Project, within which she's been developing negotiation theory and practice. She specializes in those challenging negotiations where emotions run high and relationships get strained. She's provided training and advice for the Singapore Supreme Court, the Obama White House, and theologians struggling with disagreement over the nature of truth and God. So nothing small on her plate. She's also the co-author of those two New York Times bestsellers, Difficult Conversations, and Thanks for the Feedback, which adds up to mean that we couldn't have a better resource to help us learn how to discuss the things that matter most. So with that, I'll say, Sheila, welcome to Women at Work. We have so many things we need your help with. I know. How much time do we have? (laughs) My goodness, I'm delighted to be here. We're thrilled to have you. So I want to start off talking about something that we're usually not supposed to talk about in polite company, and that's politics. Yeah. Um, We all know that they're supposed to be off limits for obvious reasons, but they're so in the air, we can't ignore them. It's so contentious. And I think people are equally troubled by the dialogue we have around it and the suppression of the dialogue. What do we do with this? Oh, golly, it's such a great question. Um, I think one of the things that, I mean, there are just so many things that are hard about um, the aftermath of this election, and, and one of them is just emotionally what different places we're in. Um, it's hard for me to remember an election where emotionally I was in a sort of wider, disparate place than the people around me. And, you know, it's interesting, my my household straddles that political divide. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, we had an Obama sign out front and a McCain sign out front. (laughs) 
And we got so many questions in the little New England town where we live that we finally just slapped a his and hers on them. <laughs> so they know who, who was voting which way. Yeah, who was, you know, everyone <laughs> would be like, and which one are you? Um, and then four years later, when you would call to get your sign, you would, they would deliver like the whole party slate. Like you'd get your presidential sign and you'd get all of your state reps and your congressional reps, et cetera. So we just I was wondering how households got all those signs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that that was the approach in 2012. Okay. And so we just divided the yard down the middle, and we had a sign that said left and a sign that said right, and we just grouped <laughs> the signs. This time, in the early primaries, interestingly, we were in the same place, actually. We were rooting for the same people to not do well, okay. and we were, were delighted that certain messages were getting through. And so it was interesting because at the beginning, emotionally, we were actually much closer than we had been in previous elections. But of course, as things played out, the one thing that was really clear is that we didn't want any signs, either of us. We considered having just a not him and not her sign because it felt like that was the dialogue this time um so yeah that that difference is i've seen it too and i've also remembered voting for candidates who won voting for candidates who lost and never before had the challenge in accepting the results and figuring out how to have productive dialogue about it some of the closest relationships in my life i I don't know how to have the conversation because we voted differently. Mm-hmm. And it feels like if we start to talk about it, it's going to devolve into an intensely personal and painful conversation. And it's scary. It's really scary. And um, so I'm going to say a couple of things that um, are maybe a little bit heretical or surprising from someone who specializes in difficult conversations. <laughs> okay, I'm game. <laughs> I will own up to the fact that um, so far I'm not in a good place to be skillful in talking about it. And so in some way, ironically, I feel like I know enough about how badly this is likely to go because I am just in a place of being so triggered and so appalled and so ashamed and so blaming and so angry Mm -hmm. that I don't think I can have the conversation in a way that's not going to really hurt the relationship. There's a funny way in which it's easier for me to talk to people who I'm not so close to about it. Right. Um, And why is that? I think because we expect certain things of the people we're closest to. And when we discover that actually, in some ways, we're further apart than I thought we were, there's an identity thing or there's something that it says about the relationship or our judgment or we're just a little shocked. Yes. Because it's hard to see them. I I keep thinking to myself, I still live in the same country with all of the same people. So why does it feel so different? It's made me, I'm having the same experience and where um, I can, I, I feel like I make a good try at having productive dialogue about policy issues and perspectives. Yeah, yeah. But in uh, these, always, but, always previously, me too. And in these, um, particularly some of my closest, oldest relationships with family members, um, the 
it raises this question, not how did you vote or what you think, but who are you? Yeah. And I and part of what I'm wondering, especially after having read difficult conversations, is what is it about some things that lead us down that road that it's so intertwined with identity that we can't separate our emotions from it? And when is finding the identity and finding the emotions the key to talking about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so intellectually, I know where I need to be in terms of my internal stance mm-hmm. in order to have the conversation in a way that has a purpose, like that I'll learn something new, that we'll talk to each other and they'll learn something new and we'll understand each other better at the end of the conversation, even if we still don't agree. Mm-hmm. I have a better idea of why, um, you know, this person might have voted the way that they voted. We'll circle back around, by the way, to the close relationships versus more acquaintances. Yes, please. Question. <laughs> um, but um, right now, I um, it's hard for me to get myself to a place of curiosity about it. You know, it's. I'm glad that you bring that up because I think it, it reinforces something that a language that you gave me as I was reading the book, which is that we usually. When we're going into difficult conversations, it's because there's a goal there. There's something we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And um, a resolution of conflict, is it the identification of something new? Um, th- and part of the advice you've given, which makes perfect sense, is we need to be curious. But it, I'm wondering if these are some of the difficult conversations that exist in our world for which there isn't going to be an outcome that comes from one conversation. Absolutely. Well, that I think is critical, which is it's pretty rare for it to be one conversation, particularly when we're talking about things as complicated um, here as um, sort of some, some core beliefs or hopes or fears that we have. Um, I sometimes think about Republicans and Democrats as, much closer than we think we are. It's just that we worry about different things. Tell me more. Republicans worry about um, government intruding on private life or controlling choices um, or creating the wrong incentives in the social system or et cetera. And Democrats worry about people being excluded or unfairly treated um, about justice issues, mm-hmm. and Republicans worry about safety issues. Mm-hmm. And of course, we both would agree that both are important. That we right? both value justice, we both and we value, value safety. Exactly. So it's not that it's not actually that we necessarily have different values. We have some different beliefs, for sure, mm-hmm. but about sort of how those values should play out. But it's not that we have different values. It's just that we fear or worry about different things. How much of it do you think is tied up into identity, that we are on the red team or the blue team? And we it's not I think Democrat, it's that I am a Democrat. We, we define ourselves by it. Well, what's interesting is I am not totally sure that if you're not professionally in politics, <laughs> I don't know that many people who would say that. They would say I'm a leftist or I'm a, you know, I'm about 
um, people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. We would, I think we would define ourselves by the narrative about it more than the label. Okay. Um, because certainly there's a lot of sort of cynicism and disgust with the parties. I mean, that certainly. is what the Bernie Sanders movement was about and the Trump movement was about, was people saying enough, you know, we're sick of this. So it, in, interestingly, they came out of similar frustration, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but part of who I am is also what I'm against. And so it's not necessarily I'm against Republicanism or Democrats, but I'm against something that this candidate represents, let's say. So coming back to your question about sort of the advice to be curious and people going into conversations with an agenda, any kind of conversation, Mm -hmm. politics, personal life, professional life, instinctively, I think one of the things we talk about is that we come into these conversations holding pretty tightly to what we feel we're right about. That's why I'm going to take the risk to have the conversation. (laughs) Um, I'm explain to you why that I'm right, and then you will understand why I'm right. I have a implicit or explicit view of whose fault this is, who's to blame, and why we're having this problem, and what you just need to understand or take responsibility for. Or maybe I'm blaming myself and feeling guilty about it doesn't actually help. Um, but but that's what I'm sort of preoccupied with, and and the shift that really helps is to move from focusing on what you feel certain about to um, focusing on wondering why we see it so differently. So I don't have to give up my own views. I still have my own views, but I'm fascinated by the fact that we see this so differently. And I wonder why that is. If I can get myself to that place of curiosity, number one, and number two, get myself out of blame to see in most situations in life, there's some joint contribution here. There's something each of us did or failed to do that got us here. And nobody maybe did anything wrong, but it just didn't help. So how did we get into this mess, and what do we each want to change to make it better? So interestingly, Laura, I could um, we could do a show where I could give some really good advice um, for having better conversations about this. And, you know, my sister um, sort of made the mistake of talking to our mom the day after the election, <laughs> which went really, really badly. And, but then she, I did something that I really admired, which is that she called a cousin of ours. She's, she's like, I don't know, I get this all confused, a second cousin, I think, but it's someone that we don't know as well. And, and although Stacy had run into her at a family funeral recently, and she suspected that this cousin had voted for Trump, and so she actually called her and said, I, I'm just trying to understand what I don't understand. And they've had several conversations that have gone really well in terms of both of them having, being curious and owning up to like, gosh, I didn't think about that, et cetera. So it's easier to do it with someone who's a little further away. Right, because it, it's less potent and vulnerable. When it's less potent and vulnerable. So what's interesting is for me during this period to be self-observing that I intellectually know what would help these conversations go better, but emotionally I'm not there yet. You're not ready yet. So I'm not ready yet, and I think sometimes you do have to just lick your wounds, and, and maybe for women, a friend of mine observed recently that men seem to be moving on faster than women in her <laughs> observation here, the ones who are 
horrified by Trump because it feels more personal. Well, because that also brings me back to the identity question. Yeah, and that, absolutely. Um, we so identified with the candidate that it was that it was more complex than just the point of view or the party platform. And I think, and, yeah. And so I'm going. I'm wondering if um, in in the election, what we have is a parable for why we need to have the difficult conversations sooner. Because what we have now is a very divided country. We have people who are really scared and in pain and mobilized on the other side. Um, Mm -hmm. But what we learned was that we weren't hearing each other. We weren't engaged in a productive national conversation about choices. And everywhere we went, there were echo chambers, um, yeah. And there were there was the blame game being played, um, defensiveness, offensiveness, but nowhere in 18 months of nonstop conversation does it seem like there was real conversation. And how yeah. do we figure out how in our real lives to do better? Yeah. Yeah, we keep circling back to this. I think, first of all, I think what you just said was really accurate and the media um, has gotten more and more polarized both in terms of where we all get our news um, each of the various sides Um, but also um, because the the country the voters are so closely divided 50-50 the incentive for um, candidates is that they're not they're they have to cast themselves to capture the ones that they can persuade over the line, right? So, so things have gotten much much more polarized because, you know, not even just the candidates, but the folks in Congress are, um, they're not talking to each other. They're sort of um, posturing, I guess that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> for the media to the people they're trying to influence in, in the public or in Right, because it's boiling down to do you, yeah. do you win a vote, do you lose a vo- vote? It's a binary option. Yeah, and, and so there isn't a lot of incentive for them to publicly work together um, that somehow has gotten lost as a value, which I think is part of what voters have been fed up with. And you said something a moment ago about identity, so we should maybe define that. Identity is sort of the story we tell about who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we stand for and what what we're like. Like, I might own up and say, look, I'm a very forgetful, irresponsible person, but, man, I'm loyal. Like, <laughs> right. no matter what. Like, we have a story about what our key characteristics are. Um, and when those feel threatened, um, that's when conversations start to feel difficult. It can be something as simple as saying no. But if I'm the kind of person who's a team player or who would never abandon someone in need, I'm going to have trouble saying no even to a stranger who asked me for help, right? Right. Where you just don't have that as part of your identity story, so it's not such a big deal to you. So if a conversation feels difficult, typically it's tied somewhere to identity. And I stopped short a moment ago when you said that people identified so much with the candidates, because I actually thought it was striking the extent to which most of the people I knew anyway um, didn't identify with Kim. <laughs> Which is why they said not him and not her. <laughs> not yet, yeah. But but identified with feeling ignored or dismissed or insulted or alienated 
on both sides by the other candidate. Now, these are feelings that are very real that we also have in our day-to-day lives. And by the way, the person I'm talking to about how we navigate these difficult conversations, both in the big picture and right at home and right in our offices, um, is Sheila Heen. And if you want to join in the conversation and and pose any questions to us about the difficult conversations you're trying to have, and they don't have to be about politics, um, it can be 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7888. Six, six. So, Sheila, when we bring these things home and we're talking about um, how our own identity shapes our willingness to have difficult conversations about things perhaps less complex but intensely important to us in our real lives, um, where, where does that come to roost in the way that we talk to each other? <laughs> well, <laughs> often we don't talk to each other. I mean, what's, one of the things that's interesting is that in many companies or organizations that I work with, one of the common profiles in the culture is, well, we have a very polite culture. So hard conversations get avoided. Um, people who are not performing or who are f- frustrating other people mm-hmm. in interaction, um, nobody tells them. Uh, or we tell them so indirectly that they don't get the message or we never have a real two-way conversation about what's going on because this is a problem. Um, And so it's often the case that, you know, on down the line, at some point someone gets fired and they're shocked that they were fired and everyone else around them says, how in the world can you be shocked? <laughs> this has been a problem for like three years. And, and by the way, I've talked to you about it like 17 times. So how in the world can this surprise you? But the conversations I may have had with them didn't convey clearly how serious it was. Now, is this something that challenges all of us? Is there a gender pattern here? It's something definitely that challenges all of us. In other words, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't. I want to be liked. I don't want them to be upset with me. Um, I worry that they'll think I'm not being fair, or that I'm being not being mean. There's there is a. I often hear women say that they suspect that there's a gender pattern that women are more likely to worry about those kinds of things. Um, my observation is that. Neither women nor men tend to do them well, and we all kind of make the same mistakes. So I don't know. There's there's a lot of um, there are a lot of studies uh, in the field of gender, and um, some of them do show some differences. But often the differences are like, well, forty nine percent of women do it this way, and fifty one do it this other way. So women are different, but of course it's always a mix. So we could um, take away from that that our gender does not have to deter is not a factor inherently in whether we're good or bad at this, and it's something we all could learn to do better. Absolutely. And I think that um, gender is a factor, for sure, in sort of how people react to you or respond to you. Um, But there's a way in which sometimes it's a little too easy a factor to uh, over-ascribe to the Mm. situation. In other words, I've been in situations I've been mediating or I've been working on teams and someone will say to me, you know, the, they, they just don't like me because I'm a woman. And I look at them because I know them and I know their mm-hmm. colleagues. 
I, I think to myself, yeah, that's not the problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're actually bringing up a really good point is that as we become more sensitive to gender issues, it can actually be too easy to ascribe them the blame for what's going on. Yeah. And, and by the way, it, which is not to say that gender is not there at all, but in terms of joint contribution, if it's there, it might be, you know, 2% of what's going on, there are also things that you're doing or failing to do that are making it worse and that the other person in reaction is doing that are making it worse. You're but actually bringing that apart is the challenge. Right. And you're bringing up a couple of really important points. And I'd love it if you could um, kind of elaborate on them in a little bit, you know, give us the kind of the principle behind it, which is that um, you were saying, you know, both sides, everybody's done something a little that both sides contribute to a problem. Yes. And is that it? And how do we how should we think about that as we're going into our difficult conversations? Well, ideally, especially when the other more... person is entirely wrong. Well, obviously. <laughs> oh, you you mean in my situation. <laughs> right. That, that only happens to me, actually. <laughs> this is an exception to that stuff that I teach. In this case, this really is your fault. Um, <laughs> right. um well, so let's talk about a couple of just common situations because it's easy to see when we talk about some grist. So shifting from blame to joint contribution um, should actually make us more curious because this feels like it's just that you're the problem. But often I'm doing things that are maybe unintentionally sending mixed signals or I have a coping strategy that's actually making it worse. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, if, if we work together and you find that I am pretty consistently late in getting you things, Mm -hmm. um, that you need, what is a common thing, strategy that you would do to try to make sure that you get things a little earlier? Um, I might talk to you about the pressures that are on us and the need to have a timeline that we can all work with and to ask if the dates that we've set work for you? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. I'll do better. Now it's, things are still late. Now what do you start to do? Uh, aside from cuss and scream privately in my office. Yeah, exactly. Um, everybody else. Yep, um, definitely. Keep going. Um, come to you and ask, is there anything that's getting in the way of meeting those deadlines that we should address directly? Yeah, okay, so here are a couple of great um, things to explore. One is um, it, it could be that I've tried to tell you actually in the past that this deadline isn't realistic, um, but you weren't really receptive to that. You just re-explained why it was important. So mm-hmm. I've kind of given up. So when you say, is this realistic, I think to myself, well, if I tell you it's not, it's not really going to help. So... I am reacting to what you've done in the past that you're probably not even aware. I just didn't feel heard. Or I'd feel like you don't really understand what it takes to get this to you. Um, But I've tried to explain it to you and you didn't listen before. So I'll tell you what, Sheila, we're going to take a break for a short break. And when we come back, I want you to tell me how could I have structured that conversation to be more empathetic and more productive? Because I really do want to get these things on time. I know, I know. <laughs> so we'll be back in a moment with Women at Work. I'm Laura I'll Zarek. be late when we come back. I'll be late, by the way. <laughs> and that's Sheila Heen. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed in the workplace. I'm Laura Zara, your host for today's show on Difficult Conversations. Yes, those essential moments of interaction where we need to make progress. We need to communicate something. We need to resolve conflict. We've got to talk about the things that matter most. And somehow, no matter how many opportunities we have to get better at these things, they continually challenge us. In fact, sometimes terrify us and often derail the progress we're making in really important areas of our lives, which is why today we have brought in a bona fide expert to help us understand why are some conversations too difficult to have and how can we approach others so that we really can talk about what matters most in a way that helps everyone leave the conversation feeling better and with renewed trust in one another. Um, The person I'm referring to is Sheila Heen. She's the co-author of Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, and her most recent book, Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, even when it's off base, unfair, poorly delivered, and frankly, you're not in the mood. Um, If you'd like to join the conversation or have questions for which you'd like Sheila's advice about how to have your own difficult conversation, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So Sheila, welcome back to Women at Work. Well, thank you. I did decide to come back on time. (laughs) I'm so glad. So right before the break, we were talking about, you know, a hypothetical conversation between coworkers. And um, I may get the roles wrong, but one coworker, we'll make it you, is the one who's perpetually late getting things done on time. And I'm the coworker who needs you to be on time with those things. And so we were talking about how do we have the conversation so that we can actually change this dynamic. Yeah, and and you actually were quite skillful, uh, more skillful than most people, maybe myself included. Sometimes it might be because um, I was reading difficult conversations yesterday, but you never know. Oh, you cheated! That's, <laughs> what you, that's what's going on. Um, so, so often what will happen is instead of having the conversation, I just try a coping strategy, or you, the person who wants the person to be on time, mm-hmm. um, who thinks this is a problem. Uh, just tries to figure out a better way to handle themselves without having to have a big conversation about it. And so the most common thing that people do is that they start to give the late person false deadlines. Ah, okay. The word false suggests bad intent, but actually it's just that I know I I actually need it by Wednesday. So if I tell you Monday then I figure I'll probably have it by Wednesday, right? (laughs) Right, so they've built it, they've handicapped the date. I've handicapped the date for both of our good, right? From my point of view, I'm just trying to make it work. I have good intentions. But what inevitably happens um, is that the person given the earlier deadline will pretty quickly figure out that it's not the real deadline. (laughs) Either either because (laughs) they notice you don't look at it until Wednesday, even though they spent their entire weekend uh, perhaps getting it to you by Monday afternoon. and so then they start to take the deadlines even less seriously. And now actually I've exacerbated the problem because now the deadlines mean even less. So my coping strategy actually made it worse, even though it was well-intentioned. One of the things that you did very skillfully actually was um, to sort of separate intention from impact. And you didn't assume that I was careless or lazy or... Or doing it to ruin my career. 
doing it or out to get you or undermine you or, you know, I'm a procrastinator who just can't get myself together. And, and we tell stories about other people to explain why they're acting this way. And those stories um, often turn into sort of characteristics about them. They just don't get it. Um, they don't care. They're clueless. They or, you know, are a mess, so, whatever. So I want to break this. do that, actually. I'm so glad. So basically <laughs> what you're saying is the norm, and, and I know I've been on both sides of this, is that um, when we're confronted with a problem, it feels like an us and them. We tend to polarize, and we assign meaning to it. That we assign meaning and we assign intentions, right? Like, why are they acting this way? Why are they being so difficult? Why are they ruining my life? Well, it must be because they are. They don't respect me. They don't care about this project. They're yeah, trying exactly. to undermine my success, that kind of thing. Right. It, it's a way for us to make sense of what's going on. So it's, a, it's an absolutely natural human tendency to do. The problem is it may have nothing to do with your, the other person's actual intentions. Their intentions are in their head. They're invisible to us. And the fastest way to make a conversation more difficult is actually to tell someone else you know why they're acting that way. Like, why do you insist on undermining me? <laughs> <laughs> right. So I've now presumed that, that you're insisting on doing this. This is your intent when I really know nothing about what's behind this. Yeah, absolutely. So what you did quite skillfully, actually, was sidestep that mistake, um, which we all make sometimes, and, and just separate intention from impact, because I don't actually know what the other person's intentions might be. Um, and it, what I instead want to describe is the impact that it's having. So I might say, look, you may or may not be aware of it, but you know, when you didn't get it to me until Friday, um, here's the impact that it had on sort of my weekend or our ability to turn around to the client or whatever. So that, and it kind of doesn't matter. It could be that you had the best excuse in the world, but what we need to fix is that it's not working. Right. Um, the best excuse, or, or actually maybe you were trying to be really, really thorough, and it would have been better for me to get um, sort of broader brush numbers on Wednesday, but you're so detail-oriented that you got me even more than I needed, but late. And so what you were actually doing quite skillfully is, is really trying to step to a place of curiosity, especially in your second round, to just say, hey, let's talk about what's going on, because what, you know, what I'm noticing is things are still late, are there things that are making it hard to meet the deadlines? Or is it that you're not, the deadlines aren't realistic? Or I'm just trying to understand, am I doing things that are making it harder? Am I not being clear about what I need? And if you can get a two-way conversation where you're really curious about just solving the problem and you're willing to own up to, there may be something I'm doing that is actually making it harder for you. Um, and I'm willing to change my part, but I'm not, I can't take responsibility for both of us. You probably also need to change some things. And now we're in a problem-solving conversation. And that's the difference. And so that's the alternate path that we can go down from the blame game and just venting and pushing each other farther apart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the two, so the two keys to that are um, getting away from one of us is at fault to we each are probably contributing maybe in ways that are reasonable, actually, it's not that anybody did anything wrong, but it's not helping, and we got to figure that out. And then the second is that separating intention from impact. If you can do those two things, whatever it is you're talking about will 
be more likely to result in a better conversation. Well, one of the intentions of our discussion today is to help make impact on your real life. So if you have a question that you would like Sheila to help you navigate, give us a call. You can reach us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Also, if you would like to email us, it's a great way to send us your questions, particularly if you're at work and trying not to bother your colleagues because you're working <laughs> on that deadline for them. You can reach us at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. And I was reminded to tell all of you about this because one of our trusty listeners remembered and sent us an email. So I've got this one in from Julie in Cinnaminson. And she says, Laura, I love your show so much. Thank you, Julie. Thanks for this discussion. What an important topic. So I'm a manager and I need to tell an employee that they won't be getting a raise. I don't want to go into too much detail about why, but behavior is part of the reason. The work isn't bad, but it could be better. Any suggestions? I know I should spin it to be positive, but it is bad news. So, Sheila, what do you have to say with that one? Well, so this is really interesting. There's a lot in this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have a dog barking in the background. Um, (laughs) My coworkers, they're just so disruptive here. (laughs) I'm glad Um, to see you have this inclusive workplace, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, So... Um, what's interesting about this conversation is that we're, we're conflating a couple of things that are actually related to each other, which is, do you get a raise, mm-hmm. number one? And number two, how is your performance? <laughs> right. So they're related to each other, but there's a funny way in which the implicit purpose of the question is, how do I deliver bad news without them being too upset? Right. And... Um, there's no, first of all, there's no way to turn bad news into good news. There's no way to say, like, you're fired, but you should really be happy about it, and they'll thank you at the end. <laughs> um, right. And, and more than that, some conversations where if the person isn't upset at the end of the conversation, then you actually are not being clear. They're not understanding. Oh, and this goes back to what you were problem. referring to before, that... Um, we attempt to have conversations, but we can actually be too um, restrained. And then communication hasn't been effective because we've held back too much because we're afraid of going to the uncomfortable places. We're afraid of going to the uncomfortable places. In some cases, we actually think that we have communicated because we know what we mean, but we're so indirect that the message doesn't land on the other side. In other words, we might say, you know, you've had a pretty good year, but it's it's been a little tough. So, you know, I'm afraid there won't be a raise for next year. Um, you know, I think there are probably some things that we can work on. Um, and then we wrap up the conversation before anybody can ask too many questions or, or get upset. And if I'm the employee listening to that, it's ambiguous. Do you mean the organization had a tough year? Right. Or was it me personally? Yeah. Or the economy? Is this feedback about me? Or is it the economy? Or is it how the business is going? And when you say we have some things to work on, who's the the royal we here? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So so that's the bad news and the good news, I suppose. It's liberating to know, actually, the goal isn't for the other person not to be upset sometimes. The goal is, so the two questions I ask myself or I ask when I'm watching a conversation play out to judge the quality of the conversation Mm -hmm. are, number one, to what extent are we talking about the real issues? 
That's critical. Are we talking? That is critical. So you mean um, in the early years of my marriage when I was in tears and hysterical because he didn't take the garbage out, I probably wasn't upset about the garbage. Right. Yeah. And so now looking back, what, what do you think the real issue was? It was really about trust and responsibility and feeling hurt. Yeah. So those are the real issues. And, and often they'll, um, there will be surface issues that are sort of representative of the underlying issue. Um, and, and so here the real issue is um, sort of what are our expectations, in what ways are you meeting them, and in what ways might we expect more particularly if you want to get a raise. Right. Um, so that means we need to be pretty specific about what, looking backward, what did I expect you to do or what did I hope you were going to do or what are the standards, right? And looking forward into the future, if you were to take my advice and coaching, what would you do differently? What would I tell you this is what would make a difference? That question sort of, this is what would make a difference. This is specifically what I'm asking you to change. Mm-hmm. Um, forces me as the giver of feedback um, to actually think that through, um, to be clearer about what it is that if you change this next year, well, we'll, have, we'll be having a different conversation at the end of the year. Right. And also, um, let me ask you something, because as I'm and so I'll like I'll try my hand at how I might explore this as a manager and tell me where I'm getting this right or wrong. So I, it seems like there's two things to parse out is the raise, because in some organizations, a raise may not be available because the organization can't afford them this year or there's yep. a, 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 a decision that's been made higher up in the organization about how raises are being given out and your staff's really not eligible for them. And you've got to share this news, but in a way that doesn't make them want to leave the organization. And then there's the question of if there are a few plum raises available, um, what does it take to get one? And how do we, and if you didn't get one this year, how do we get you there in a future year? Yeah. And this sounds like the second kind of conversation, but you're absolutely right that there are two, three, four reasons why someone might not be getting a raise um, and we think it's obvious that we might think it's obvious that it's a performance reason, but it's not necessarily obvi- obvious to them. And so in a conversation like this where you're delivering what's essentially bad news, um, and yes, we have the fantasy that you could have the conversation in such a way that they leave happy, even grateful, and that's unrealistic. Um, what could we do to turn it into a productive conversation? Well, so remember that joint contribution thing? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know Julie. She's not here mm-hmm. um, to tell us more about the situation. But I can imagine a, when I have been Julie um, as the boss, I probably can think of at least a couple of things that I've contributed to the fact that we're now at the end of the year. I'm anticipating that not getting a raise or the idea that there are some performance things I'd like to see improve um, comes as a surprise. Well, I've probably contributed in that it probably shouldn't be a surprise. I probably should have raised these performance issues earlier. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I did, but I didn't follow up on it. Or I didn't say, and by the way, if these don't change, it will affect whether or not you get a raise. Um, so So the person didn't realize how serious it is. 
And I'm not actually blaming the manager at all as much as to say, if you can look back and see what you wish you would have done differently, leading with that actually signals pretty loudly to the other person, this is not actually about blame. This is about how do we want to fix this and move forward. So I might actually um, start by saying, so I want to talk about your compensation just to be totally upfront. Um, you won't be getting a raise for next year. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about why. And it occurs to me that I wish that we would have had this conversation six months ago. And I, so I, one of the reasons I want to have it really clearly now is I want to make sure that we're clearer in understanding each other. And I can just understand what's going on from your point of view um, as we talk a little bit about sort of where the expect you're fulfilling the expectations really well and the places where I really see opportunities um, to strengthen your performance. So by doing that, you're essentially, instead of just dropping a bad news bomb, you're opening up a conversation where you say, well, this isn't the news that you wanted to hear. We're gonna, I'm here with you to help make this different going forward. Yeah. And so remember um, I said there are two questions I asked myself to judge quality. Mm-hmm. The first is to what extent are we talking about the real issues? So I'm trying to own my responsibility my part of the responsibility um, and put the real issues on the table. The second question I ask is, as a result of this conversation, is our working relationship in this case um, better or worse than it was before mm. the conversation? And that is actually a tricky question to answer because in the immediate aftermath, it might feel like it's worse because they're upset with me. But in the longer term, it, I am laying some foundation for trust that if there's a problem, I'll own my part and we'll talk about it and we'll figure out how to solve it. And that actually makes our working relationship stronger over the longer term. It's an investment I'm making right now that you can trust me to be upfront with you about what's going on and we'll work together to make it better. The wise woman that I'm talking with about these complicated conversations is Sheila Heen, who, amongst the many amazing things she does at Harvard and in her consulting group, um, is the co-author of Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, and Thanks for the Feedback, the Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, even when it's off base, unfair, poorly delivered, and frankly, you're not in the mood. I could say that 10 times. I'd never get tired of it. Um, <laughs> if you want to join the conversation, um, give us a call at one eight four four wharton That's one eight. 844-942-7866. I really think Sheila could solve just about every problem that we have. So, Sheila, I, I now want to take that question, and I want to turn it in the other direction, because one of the things, well, a manager is understandably nervous about conveying bad news to an employee. They want to keep their staff there. It can be very uncomfortable to have unhappy employees. Um, what about when it's the other direction? And you're asking for something of somebody who has more power than you in an organization. You're going up the chain to ask for a new opportunity, ask for a raise, ask for a promotion, or confront a problem. Is there a different way that you structure that conversation when you don't have the power advantage? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the same elements are there and the same skills are there. Um, one of the things as an employee, I want to think about how do I, so let's imagine I want to go in and ask for a raise. 
um, one of the things I want to think about is, okay, my purpose would be, it's time to say my purpose is to get a raise. That's something that I don't have any control over. So instead, I'm going to shift my purpose slightly and to say, um, my purpose is to go in and share my sense of whether I am due for a raise or not, and to learn as much as I can about how my boss sees it um, and what it would take. You're coming back to that learning question and curiosity. It's that learning question, yeah. So if my purpose, if I can shift my purpose from delivering a message um, to creating a learning conversation, then actually, I would it automatically puts me in a different frame of mind, and it means I'll handle the conversation differently. So one of the worst things you can do when you're asking for raises is to go in and ask for a raise. <laughs> Oddly enough, because you're putting your boss on the spot, it's uncomfortable, um, you're, you're sort of advocating, and, you know, the boss is very aware of all of the complicated factors. Well, if I give you a raise, then I'm going to have to give Julie a raise. And we also know um, that this is one of those areas where gender is a factor. It is, and that there's some evidence that women are reluctant to ask. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, um, you don't have to ask. Um, What you can do is to go in and say, you know, hey, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the way that my responsibilities have been shifting or my whatever it is that makes you think you deserve a raise, right? Um, My sense looking at the market is that I may be due for an adjustment for the following reasons, um, but help me understand how you think about compensation and whether that seems right to you or what information do you have that you know you use as you think about when an adjustment might be due. So that you're going in um, asking a question that actually carries the conversation and allows you to explore something together. Yeah, and, and that also means I need to do my homework in terms of having a sense of what I am worth and that I can go in with some criteria to say, you know, look, the other people who are handling this, you know, whatever, size business or who are performing this role or whatever, have this set of responsibilities are making more than I am, whether that's inside my own organization and that information can sometimes be easy to get and sometimes be hard to get, but informally you can get a feel for it in many cases. Um, But outside the organization these days, it's often a little easier to get a sense of what the range should be. And if you're at the bottom of the range to say, you know, look, it feels to me like I'm due for an adjustment given how things have changed since we last talked about my compensation in whatever way they have changed. But help me understand it. And if I can get a two-way conversation going with you, now I have you engaged in the task of examining whether my compensation is fair or not, or is about right or not. And, and saying, look, I just want to be treated fairly um, means I don't have to worry that I'm going to look greedy or um, grabby, which I think mm-hmm. is part of what makes people hesitate to ask. Right. And I think or like, you're... I'm only in this for the money. It's like, <laughs> it's not I'm only in this for the money, but I do actually want to feel treated fairly. Right. And you're bringing up several points that we've touched on on previous shows, which is that particularly for women, um, self-advocacy can bite you in the butt. But if you're going in and you're talking about being treated fairly or being acknowledged for a contribution that you've made to the company or organization's success, that's likely to be heard with a more open mind. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that because um, 
so I teach negotiation, actually, at Harvard <laughs> Law School. And what's really interesting is that there are a lot of people, men and women, um, who are fantastic advocates on other people's behalf. But when it comes to self-agency, as it's been coined, being your <laughs> own agent for your own interests, they totally fall apart. And so one of the things that you can actually do with a friend um, to get ready um, is just role play. If you, were, if you were representing someone else and you were your own client, right, um, just imagine you're your own agent and go in and make the case for why Laura really deserves a raise. And what's interesting is that in role-playing it, if once I start talking about myself, you know, Sheila really deserves a raise for the following reasons, or you'd say Laura really deserves a raise, like what she's doing has changed, the impact she's having has changed, it frees you up to actually be able to articulate what the reasons are without worrying about looking boastful or braggy or selfish or full of yourself, <laughs> et cetera. But then you can start to go, oh, yeah, those are the reasons I just <laughs> right. Well, Sheila, I got to tell you, not only I think maybe we all deserve a raise, but you really deserve more airtime, which unfortunately we're <laughs> running out of today. So I want to thank you for joining me on Women at Work. It has been an absolute delight to have you spend the time with us. And I think I'm going to go approach a whole bunch of conversations differently. So thanks again. I'd also like to thank Patty Hall, our beloved producer, our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, and our production assistant, Allie Freed. Women at Work is clearly today brought to you by all women at work. Um, tune in next week for our conversation with Peggy Streep, who's coming back to Women at Work at work to talk about her new book, Mean Mothers, as we delve into the strategies we can use to cope with tough family relationships during the holiday season. Our schedule of replays can be found on the SiriusXM website. That's www.siriusxm.com backslash business radio. Thank you so much for listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on SiriusXM 111. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I look forward to talking with you next week. 